Mark seven twenty four to thirty seven. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He went uh, entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman, the woman was from was a Greek, born in Syrian Philistia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the child eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then she t- he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went into Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and onto the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he it and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Infada, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Our reading thus far. Thank you, Roscoe. Uh, Nice work. There's some tricky words in there. It's not everyone who gets asked to to read has to read Aramaic words. It's a nice one. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. Um, It's a couple of well-known maybe, uh, and unusual stories, um, but the details in here really help us to, to, to get a handle on what, what they mean, uh, and so if you can follow along, um, you'll be well served this morning. Uh, it always amazes me um, the crazy lengths that people will go for, for things they want. Uh, people seem to do all sorts of nuts things uh, for things that they think are desirable. Um, I don't know if you'd put me in that category. I think the craziest thing I've ever done is line up at half past four in the morning uh, to get Falls tickets. Um, The only reason I think that's crazy is because I didn't actually go. (laughs) Um, I ended up getting a girlfriend who later became my wife and she wasn't going. So anyway, that story ended up well. Uh, But that was a waste of time. But but other people go to to, to crazy lengths, don't they, Uh, to get things that they really want. I read the other day uh, an article about people who literally camped outside a brewery in the States uh, overnight to get a new release beer, um, limited to a four-pack per person. So (laughs) you've really got to want it. Like, that's crazy. Uh, you see footage of the Black Friday sales in the States where you know, they've put on big sales and, and people are literally battering down the store, store doors and you know, screaming and, and pushing and fighting and utterly humiliating themselves to, to get these things at a bargain price. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? People will go to extreme lengths uh, 
to get things that they want, to get all sorts of stuff. Well, in our passage today, something is revealed to us, is made obvious to us, made clear to us, that we really want. Uh, It's something beautiful. It's something wonderful and it is something that we're promised will change our life and not only the span of our natural life but our life forever. And not only is it revealed but it's offered. It's offered to us. And the question for us is what are we willing to do to have it? What are you willing to do to have it? Now, I don't know what your reaction is to the story, uh, at least the first half of this, this passage that Roscoe read before, uh, but for me, this, this kind of feels like Jesus at his most unlikable, doesn't it? it it's, it's rude, it's abrasive, it's, it's a harsh and strange encounter, isn't it? I mean, how can Jesus talk like this? Jesus is supposed to be a nice guy, uh, and this is not a nice way to talk, is it? But before we pass judgment, let's, let's put in some effort to understand why Jesus is being so abrasive here. Uh, there's a dynamic at play and we need to, under, to, to, to grasp that in order to understand this story. Let me just read again from verse 24 through 25. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. Uh, So Jesus up until this point has been operating in the area of Galilee. He's been crossing back and forth uh, in the north of of Israel. It's been his base of operations. But now he's left. Uh, We're not told why, but it seems from the the previous stories that the the opposition to him has been ramping up uh, and he's getting away from that before it escalates to uh, any further. And so he's gone northwest of Israel towards the coast to the city of Tyre, to the region of Sidon. He is now outside of Israel. He's in Gentile lands. And it seems that he's there quite secretively. Maybe he's gone there to rest, to get a break and recharge. He seems to do that every so often. Uh, maybe he's taking time now to teach and instruct his disciples further and doesn't want to be interrupted But regardless of his intent, what we do see is he can't get away from people. Even in this Gentile place, he can't escape people who've heard his reputation. Look at verse 26, the description of this woman who came. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Mark records a reasonable number of details about this woman and and all of them seem to be to emphasise just how unlikely a person she is to come before Jesus. She is a Greek or a Gentile, that is she's not an Israelite, Um, she's not even uh, a believer in Judaism, she's uh, a complete outsider. She's not part of the promised people of the Old Testament, she's got no claim on this Jewish saviour or messiah Uh, She's from Syrian Phoenicia. Um, Throughout the Old Testament we we read all about this area. It's a place where enemies of Israel have come from. They've fought constantly. Uh, They're pagans and their practices are notorious. What's more, she's a woman, most she's are. Uh, But in those days, 
a second class citizen. She's coming alone, which suggests that she's potentially a widow and likely poor. And on top of all of this, her daughter has an evil or an unclean spirit. This is the last person you would expect to come to Jesus, even further, the last person you would expect Jesus to entertain. And it seems like Jesus acknowledges that. Look at verse 27. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, but it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> it's pretty harsh, isn't it? Uh, it's pretty, pretty clear who the dogs are in that story. It's this lady come to him. I mean, how, how inappropriate is that? And it, it's, it's the, almost the harshest thing Jesus says, isn't it, in this whole gospel? And we, we can't ex- try to explain it away. Some people make an effort that, you know, he uses a word for little dog as if, you know, it's like a pet. It's not actually an insult. But it, it, it is. We, we can't shy away from that. It's an insult. Dogs were unclean and distasteful throughout culture then. So why does he do it? Well, the word dog is important, and we're going to see why in a moment. But the emphatic, the central word in what Jesus says here is that word first. First. The word first is of first importance. Uh, Because it implies a lot, doesn't it? Uh, I once knew a a person, a man, who um, when he was introducing his family to uh, strangers or to a new bunch of people, he would announce his children as, uh, these are the children of my first wife. What do you you say to that? Well, you say, oh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. What what happened to her? Uh, And he would say with a twinkle in his eye, well, nothing. I'm still married to her. She's still my first wife. Uh, He had a really bad sense of humour, but anyway, it worked for him. But, But that's what you assume, isn't it? Uh, If you hear the word first, you assume second. And that's exactly the point here, isn't it? That's the whole point that Jesus is making. The first is underway. First is happening. Jesus has come to Israel. He's come to God's people as God said he would to bring hope and life and salvation and restoration to them. That's what was promised, that Jesus would come. He's come first to the children And by beautiful implication, he is coming second to the others, to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, to bring that same hope and life and salvation and restoration. Now, just to be clear that we're not reading too far into this, it's obvious that that's actually what the woman understands that Jesus is saying. Look at verse 28. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It's an incredible response. Uh, Do do you see what has happened here? Recall every other person who's come to Jesus through Mark. We've seen it in seven chapters now. Person after person has come. Jesus has responded in all sorts of strange and obscure ways. And out of all of those people, this woman is the only one who gets his response. This, This Greek, this Syrian Phoenician, she alone has picked it up. See what she's done here. She has discerned the point of Jesus' parable. Every other parable so far has needed explanation. Not even the disciples have got them. But this woman has. She has picked it, and not only has she picked it, she's accepted her place in it, hasn't she? 
I mean, she hasn't said, as you might expect, are you calling me a dog, Jesus? You can't do that. Now, instead what she's said is, yes, I, I am a dog, you're right. But even the dogs get crumbs. She knows where she stands. She understands how things work. It's, I mean, it's incredible. She discerns, she accepts, and she receives. Look at verse 29 to 30. Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. For these words, Jesus says, for, for such a reply, for, for understanding, for getting what I'm saying and for getting your part in this, you receive. So we're being told something amazing in this story. Jesus has come, yes, first to and for Israel, for the Jews, but second and no less intentionally for the rest, for the Gentiles, for us. Now in case we doubted that, uh, in case we wondered when that might actually happen, when the second part of this plan would unfold, uh, Jesus actually confirms it later. Um, when we get to the end of each of the Gospels, we see Jesus after his resurrection saying, what does he say? Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Go and proclaim me. He's saying we're in the days of that second unfolding now. That, that, that's now. It's today. Jesus has come for us. The good news is ours. But there's a challenge here too. Are you willing to accept it? Are you willing to accept it, even if it requires humility? Are you willing to admit your need? Are you willing to accept help? Uh, kids are terrible at this, at least young kids, which are the only kids I have experience with. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I find, found Jethro trying to do something that was well beyond him, um, we would be rather well off. Uh, for example, it seems every day we find him trying to climb his change table. It has slick sides, there's no steps on it, but he will, he's determined he's going to climb that one day. Uh, he's slipping, he's banging his knees and his nose, he's frustrated. Uh, and you come in and you say, well, can I help you? No, me do it. And he, you know, a little scream for emphasis, which I won't do. Uh, but you see, it, it's funny in kids. Uh, it's amusing and entertaining. It's less funny in adults, isn't it? Are you any better? Can you show the sort of humility that says, yes, I need help? Can you help me? Can you admit your need? Can you ask for help? Uh, it, it's, it's a hard thing. We live in a society that's geared to exactly the, the opposite, a DIY world. But we shouldn't miss, there is something remarkable being offered to us here. Jesus, uh, the, the King of Heaven, is offering healing and hope. It's saying, it's come to you and it is for you and it is now. There is a chance here to be made right, to be freed, to be given life and it's been extended here to you. But can you do what's needed to receive it? Can you admit your place in this story? Can you say, 
Yes, I'm a dog. Uh, We're going to sing it later. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, you've no doubt sung that dozens of times and maybe not even ever thought of it. Can you sing it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a dog like me. Because that's who you are in this story. That's who I am in this story. Now, we're not Israelites. We don't have any hereditary claim to this, although they squandered theirs, but that's another story. Uh, We're not good. We don't come to this with any moral claim. We can't come to Jesus and just say we were misled uh, and claim ignorance. We're a dog. We are dogs. And yet Jesus is offering the chance to be a child if we simply admit our need for him and accept his help. You can't come on your feet. You can only come on your knees. But you can receive because this offer is made for you. But what does it mean uh, and what does it look like? Well, as we read on, we we find out more. Uh, Jesus' journey continues. Look with me at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Um, If you want later, have a look in the back of your Bible at the maps there or look on one on the internet. Uh, You'll see this is a very roundabout journey. This is definitely not the fastest way to get there. Um, Jesus has taken a huge detour and again likely because he's dodging the religious leaders. He doesn't want to have that confrontation yet because he knows where that's going to end. And so he he takes this long journey and he arrives in the Decapolis, uh, another Gentile area, uh, but a Gentile area with a bit more influence from the Jews. And as he arrives, this man is brought to him, a man with a terribly debilitating condition. Look at verse 32. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Uh, He's a deaf mute, his ears have been stopped, his tongue is bound. He is completely unable to communicate. He he can't hear, he can't express himself. It's to the point that his friends have to bring him to Jesus because he's unable to even come and, and, and speak of his need. And Jesus acts. Uh, and the description is quite, uh, quite detailed. Look at verse 33 and 30, uh, to 35. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephrathah, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Uh, It is a a strange sounding healing. It's unusual to see Jesus being so so (laughs) hands-on, you can say very literally. Uh, But on the other hand, it's very tender, isn't it? It's very um, compassionate and very personal. Jesus takes this man away from the crowd. He, He does this off to the side. He um, identifies the problem areas. He touches them. Uh, That seems a bit strange to us, but really for for, uh, religious healers and religious practice in the day, that would be quite normal uh, to do that. We see Jesus 
sigh, this deep groan as he sees the frustration of the hurts that sins caused. And he speaks. Uh, Ephrathah says, be opened. He's calling on God to heal. And heal God does. Mark really emphasises what's happened here. That, that Verse 35 is just his comment saying, look what's happened. Uh, this man's ears have been opened. His tongue has been released. And, and speech flows forth from him. Every single one of his issues has been, uh, has been addressed by Jesus. He doesn't even have to learn to talk again. Speech just pours forth from him plainly. It's, it's incredible. Mark's saying, look at this. How wonderful is this? How thorough is Jesus' healing? And everyone who saw it was overjoyed. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept, they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It is an incredibly significant sign that Jesus has done here. It's, it's so laden with meaning. It seems that the people there recognise that. Certainly Mark is drawing our attention to it. Uh, he, he's echoing words that come to us from Isaiah 35. 500, 700 years before Isaiah wrote this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And Mark's saying, that's here. He even uses some of the same words. He's saying, that's now. That day which Isaiah looked forward to, a day of restoration, of rescue and salvation, uh, that day we've been waiting for for years and, and longing and looking for, that day's arrived. It's here, it's today. And the people there recognised it and they understood this man, Jesus. Somehow he's at the centre of it. He's the one revealing it. He's the one bringing it to pass amongst it. Uh, no wonder they want to talk about it. It's, it's completely understandable, isn't it? God's acting. God's doing what he's promised. What, what wonderful news. Of course we want to announce that. It's, it's actually even remarkable. They've got it right, haven't they? They've recognised what's happening and they're going out and proclaiming it. They're saying God's rescuer, God's restorer is here. And they're correct. So why does Jesus silence them? Why does he seem to try to silence them so much more? I mean, if they've got it right, why can't they talk about it? Well, the reason is they've missed something very important to come. Uh, it would be a bit like talking all about George Foreman uh, as that wonderful grill inventor. Uh, I don't, you don't hear about George Foreman grills much anymore, but they were all over the TV a few years back. You know, They were wonderful. Big man with his big grills and they cooked such good-looking food that was fat-free and was lean and was wonderful. What a man. What a grill inventor. But see, if all you ever talked about was George Foreman, the grill inventor, you've actually kind of missed out on the best thing. Um, you've missed out on George Foreman, you know, the, the world-famous boxer. George Foreman, the gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist, the uh, two-time world heavyweight champion, the boxer who retired with a 76 to 5 win-loss ratio, 68 of those by knockout. Like, surely you've heard of George Foreman? He's a legend. Uh, he's a legend for his boxing. He was, he was a monster in the ring. 
But if all you talk about is George Foreman, the grill inventor, you've missed the best part, haven't you? You've missed who he really is. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, if that's all you announce, yes, you're right, I am God's restorer, I am the one who's bringing salvation and life, but you've only got half the story. If you only tell that bit, you're missing the point. There's so much more to come. The best bit's yet to come. Yes, Jesus is here to heal. Yes, he is here to restore and break chains and give life as the glorious king that Isaiah said would come, but by being the crucified saviour. It's like, it's like the maths teacher always said, oh, maths teacher always saying, show you're working out, you know, show you're working out. Because you can get the right answer the wrong way, can't you? And that's what's happened here. They've got the right answer. He is the one Isaiah is talking about, but they've got there the wrong way. They've misunderstood. Yes, Jesus is the glorious king who saves, but it is by being the crucified one who dies to forgive sin and truly heal and truly free and truly give life. And if you've not understood that, and if you've not accepted that, then you've not understood him. You can't have Jesus without the cross. Not only do we need to humble ourselves to accept him, but we also need to accept him in all his humility as he dies there in the midst of suffering. I mean, who is it? Who is it at the end of the Bible who stands at the, the centre of heaven at the end of time? It's the lamb, isn't it? The lamb looking as if it was slain. He's our hero. He's our king. He's our saviour. And that's hard. Because to acknowledge that and to accept that is to say of ourselves, we are far more broken than we'd ever dared admit. We are so far gone that it takes the death of our king to save us. To acknowledge who he is, to acknowledge what he's done, is saying, uh, I can't go on as in my own way. I must repent. It's not just grab Jesus and keep going in my own direction. It's not add him to my life, but it's actually turn around, change. To accept such a radical saviour, it takes a radical response. But it is life. That's how we accept him and that's how we're called to announce him too. Because once we've understood him, then we can speak of him and we can take this, this great offer that he's extending to the nations and announce it ourselves. That our tongues would be loosened, that our uh, words, lips, would speak plainly of him. Because that day is here. He is offering himself not only to you but to your neighbours, to your family, to your friends as well. He's revealed himself to us so that we can reveal him to others. And announce him and proclaim him and keep talking of him. But always in the context of the cross, never without it. I mean, it's, it's tempting, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's a distasteful message. It's a hard message. It seems strange. 
Uh, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Have you ever felt that absurdity? Have you ever felt that foolishness? When you, when you talk about Jesus, it feels crazy, doesn't it? Come and follow this guy. He died for you. How strange is that? Yes, everything you need is in Jesus because he went to the cross. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It is foolishness, isn't it? But it's true. And it matters. And unless we proclaim the cross, we're not really proclaiming Jesus. We need to keep it central. Uh, as weird and as hard, as offensive as it is, we need to keep coming back to his cross and proclaiming it. Now, that means we're going to have to think through how to do that. It doesn't just happen. Uh, it means even practising. You know, how do we actually talk about the cross? How do we talk about what it means uh, in the context of, of our lives and our relationships and the conversations that we have? Uh, maybe we can think about how to do it when it comes to talking about the brokenness of the world. I mean, that comes up in conversation all the time, doesn't it? You know, we're always talking about, oh, isn't it so terrible that? Or isn't it awful how coronavirus or, I don't know, un unemployment or sickness? or We're always talking about that conversation all over the place, aren't we? We can talk about the cross there. You know, we can say, yes, actually the Bible, Jesus talks all, a, a whole lot about why the world is so broken, why it's so confusing and full of hurts. He never shies away from it, he never pretends it doesn't exist. In fact, he says it's so bad that we can't just make a quick fix for it. In fact, it's so bad it takes something as big as his own death on the cross to make it right. And then we've linked, haven't we? We've spoken of Jesus, we've spoken of his cross and we've done it in a way that relates. Now, you can do a whole lot better than that. That's, that's, that's pretty hack. But, but we can think of those ways to talk about his cross, to talk about him in the context of our days. I mean, do it one day. Think about how you can relate your conversations to the cross. And I think you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised at how central it actually is to everything and how clearly it speaks. How does the cross speak of hope? How does it speak of life? How does it speak into personal change? How does it speak into work and parenting? It does. Take some time to think about how and prepare yourself to proclaim this great news of life and hope in him. We need to speak it because we live in a world that needs it. Because today this good news is extended not only to here, not only to us, but to Alverston and to our surrounding towns. And today it can be received. We receive it with humility. We can speak it with confidence of our glorious King and our crucified Saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has come to bring life and hope and restoration and salvation uh, even to wretches, uh, to dogs like us. Not because we were so good or so deserving, uh, but because he loved us so much that he would give his life even to death on a cross to forgive us and restore us and make us your children. Father, we thank you that you have offered and given this good news to us Help us to be humble to receive it 
And having received it, help us to be bold to proclaim it. Father, it is good news, even though it is hard, and it's the news that people all around us need so desperately. Father, help us to speak it gladly. Help us to speak it clearly and boldly and proclaim Jesus and life through his death on the cross. Father, we pray that not only would we speak it, but that by your mercy people would respond to it, would accept him and find life forever in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.